0: This episode of Rhode Island PBS Weekly was generously underwritten
1: by...
2: The smallest state in the Union has over 400 miles of coastline, which may be why Rhode Islanders can always see a bright day ahead. Out there inspiring. Conquering. Striving. Triumphing. Rising, Rhode Island Rising, it's what we live for.
1: Tonight
0: on Rhode Island PBS Weekly.
3: I think at some point everybody has kind of said, is this it, do I look elsewhere?
4: After a grueling two years, many mental health professionals are burned out and quitting, forcing providers to reduce
5: services. I've been here over 30 years. This has never happened. We've never
6: closed a site before. I felt trapped. I felt trapped inside my body, and I didn't know exactly what the name of what I was feeling was.
7: It's still really a concept that people are trying to understand better, but we really don't know how to approach it. Uh, And the only people who know how to approach it are the people who are dealing with it.
1: Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm David Wright.
8: I'm Pamela Watts. Tonight, our stories will center on mental health and
1: those who have struggled to overcome the stigma that often accompanies these illnesses. We begin our broadcast with a close look at a vital industry here in Rhode Island that's on the brink. A global pandemic. Inflation. The war in Ukraine. School shootings. The stress of daily life has most Americans on the edge. A recent study by the American Psychological Association reported that 87 percent of those surveyed believe there's been a constant stream of crises over the last two years. But what happens when those meant to help during a crisis are in a crisis themselves? As Michelle San Miguel first reported last March, that's the state of many of Rhode Island's mental health providers who, because of dwindling resources and unprecedented demands, have found themselves at the breaking point.
9: Some of these poor clients have had three, four, five different caseworkers in a year because of the burnout and staff leaving. They finally uh, gain trust in this person, and they start a relationship, and next thing you know, that case manager's gone. Mark
4: Dubois is used to working in a stressful environment. He retired from the Woonsocket Police Department after 23 years on the force. But he says working in mental health is even more taxing, especially these past two
9: years. There are some clients that ideally I would see weekly, mm-hmm. you know, and unfortunately because of the extra caseload that I'm carrying, I can see them every two, three or four weeks at times.
4: Dubois and Lorian Wunschel work with patients who have severe and persistent mental illness at Community Care Alliance in Woonsocket. They say the mental health of many of their clients has worsened since the onset of the pandemic.
9: Increased anxiety, increased isolation. Uh, There are clients that don't want to leave their homes. There are clients that do not want to come into this building.
3: When people get hired, the training process is expedited. We hope that they pick up really quick because we have the clientele for them to take. I have a case manager who hasn't even been here six months and she's up to 34 clients.
4: Somebody fresh out of college?
3: Yes, that this is their first job, green, not really experienced in the mental health field and they were tossed right in.
4: So someone in their early 20s who's managing that many people. Attracting qualified employees is not easy. The starting rate at Community Care Alliance is $15 an hour for a bachelor's level position.
9: If I didn't have my small state pension that I get from being retired from the police department, there is no way financially that I could afford to to work here.
4: The largest opioid treatment provider in Rhode Island, Kodak Behavioral Healthcare, is
5: also experiencing a staffing crisis. As the demand for services has increased, our workforce has decreased.
4: Since the pandemic started, Kodak has seen more than 280 additional people seeking help for opioid use or mental health services. But during that time, 113 employees have left the nonprofit. Linda Hurley, president and CEO of Kodak, says it mainly
5: boils down to one word. It is burnout. We get tired. And instead of being kinder to each other, we are the opposite. That just creates this sense of ill being that has made it a very difficult time for behavioral health care in general.
4: Hurley says the staff shortage forced her to temporarily shut down one of Kodak's locations and reduce hours at several others including its sites in Southern Rhode Island. For months, they've been closed on weekends.
5: I've been here over 30 years. This has never happened. We've never closed before. We've never closed a site before.
4: Hurley says it's the patients who end up suffering, especially those who are on medication, to manage their opioid withdrawals. Some spend hours on a bus traveling to get their medicine. It comes as Rhode Island saw a record 384 overdose deaths in 2020. Have you seen people relapse because they could not get their medication on time? We have seen that. We see that. Specifically because locations were closed on the weekends
5: due to the shortage of staff? Yeah. The, the survival part of our brain kicks in and says, oh my God you don't want to have that happen again. You better do something about this. And at that moment, we place the individual that has come to us for care in danger of overdose at that very moment. That's because it feels like dying. It really does. It's not an exaggeration.
8: Hi. 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 How are you? Good, how are you doing?
4: Good. Tammy Cruel knows what that feeling is like. She stopped using opioids a decade ago. I am, I am. It actually, it's going pretty well. Cruel has been seeing a therapist at Kodak for many years. Before the pandemic, they would meet once a month. But since COVID hit, she's felt the need to talk with her therapist once a week. The last two years have
3: completely taken my entire life and turned it upside down. Bad dreams had come back. My night terrors came back. It's that feeling We wake up, my chest would be tight because I would be trying to yell in my dreams, but
4: not realize it. The uncertainty of the pandemic made worse by the death of several loved ones, including her father, David, who had cancer. When
3: my father had passed away, it was an awful, awful. He died at home, but it was just not an ideal situation. There was no support for my family, and that was COVID-related because it happened on a weekend. The hospice unit was short-staffed already because of COVID. We had called at 2 p.m., and no one arrived until 9, and by then he was already gone.
4: Cruel is hardly alone. Mental health providers say the needs of patients, both new and old ones, have become more acute over the past two years. Would you attribute that to the pandemic? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those needs come at a cost. Most of Kodak's patients are on Medicaid, which accounts for 86% of the
5: organization's budget. This state, for whatever reasons, is not showing us that it is invested in the poorest and the most ill people that reside here.
4: For years, Hurley has been urging state lawmakers to raise Rhode Island's Medicaid reimbursement rate to no avail. It's been stagnant for more than a
5: decade. We haven't had an increase in 14 years. What business can possibly survive uh, on not having, not even a cost of living increase for the most part? 14 years. Hurley
4: says an increase in the Medicaid reimbursement rate would allow her to pay her employees more and reduce turnover. Right now, the organization is trying to fill 18 percent of its positions.
0: You see a lot of providers choosing Massachusetts to be where they uh, practice rather than Rhode Island because of the difference in the Medicaid rates.
4: Rhode Island State Senator Josh Miller has been working to raise the state's Medicaid reimbursement rate for several years. But he says it's been tough to get lawmakers to consider the long-term benefits.
0: An increase in Medicaid looks like an increase in the budget expenditure. But if you look at it beyond 12 months and see it as filling gaps of care, then it's a benefit because you're avoiding hospitalization, you're avoiding more expensive care and the patient is treated in a non-emergency setting rather than emergency setting.
4: So in the long term, it stands to save taxpayers money. Right. So why hasn't it been raised?
0: Because there's just a tradition and a mentality of not looking beyond 12 months.
4: What's at risk if these rates are not increased soon?
0: What's at risk is, is the best results you can get for patients, is uh, patients will, um, you know, go into crisis rather than having some, something dealt with pre-crisis.
4: But dismal staffing levels make it harder to avert a crisis. It's led many mental health providers to reach a breaking point.
9: Inability to sleep, because they're thinking about their clients. We have some clients that are homeless, thinking about uh, clients that may not have enough food, may not have shelter. A lot of these people wind up leaving the job because it's affecting them that much.
3: Has either of you thought about quitting? I mean, yeah. I think at some point everybody has kind of said, is this it? Do I look elsewhere? But, I mean... Here I am. (laughs) I don't see me actually leaving anytime soon. What keeps you showing up at work? I love my clients. A lot of those clients I've had since I've started, and I've seen them come so far and through ups and downs, and I am here for them.
9: You know, I look forward to uh, coming in and making our clients the, the best that they can be.
8: In June, the Rhode Island state budget passed and Community Care Alliance was part of a group of providers to receive $30 million in funds. The budget also included a provision to evaluate the Medicaid reimbursement rates that both Kodak and Community Care Alliance receive. But it will be at least a year before they see any potential increases. Up next, as we first reported last March, there's an estimated 1.4 million Americans who often suffer mental health challenges but because of shame and fear, they sometimes go without treatment. Tonight, we introduce you to individuals who sought and received help on their often painful journey to live their best lives.
6: Typically, I wake up at three and then I melt the door by four. The worst part about my job is probably my commute. Um, It takes me about 45 minutes to get up there.
8: 30-year-old Cole Love of Pawtucket is a plumber by trade. He's your classic blue-collar, hard-working guy. But Cole didn't start out life that way. He was born female. How old were you when you first realized, I'm not a girl? Probably around four years old. I remember wanting to be born first before
6: my brother. I have an older brother. That's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be him. I wanted to not just be him, but be a, a boy.
8: Because that felt natural to you? Yes,
6: it felt more than natural. It felt like who I was. Unfortunately, my parents didn't understand and I didn't know what words to tell them. And so they tried to have me conform to a more feminine path in life and like wear dresses and stuff. But that's when like I dove into depression and having anxiety I became extremely closed into myself and didn't really talk to people. And I ended up trying to kill myself when I was 17 because of who I was. And
8: You really came
6: close to suicide? Yeah. I felt trapped. I felt trapped inside my body. And I didn't know exactly what the name of... What I was feeling was when I looked in the mirror, I didn't recognize myself. I didn't I didn't recognize who I wanted to be and what I felt inside.
8: It isn't easy for most teenagers to search for identity, but for people like Cole who are transgender, it can be confounding and agonizing. Transgender is an umbrella term for when one's sense of personal identity doesn't match with their birth sex. Cole says he finally found therapists through a local healthcare provider.
6: They have been such like, uh, like a beacon of light in like the, the that dark time that I was experiencing.
8: The therapist linked him up with support groups where he met other individuals who were going through the same struggles. I was able to
6: try out he/him pronouns, and I was also to try, able to try out um, being called Cole, and it felt so right for me. Like, I remember the first time it happened, I went home and like was crying because I was so happy. That's when I knew.
8: A 2017 study by the Rhode Island Department of Health found almost 20 percent of high school students identify with the opposite gender from their birth or no specific gender at all. Many of these teenagers confront social stigma, bullying and discrimination. According to Yale School of Public Health, transgender individuals are six times more likely to have mood or anxiety disorders and ten times more likely to commit suicide. Reliable data is hard to come by, but anecdotally, many mental health providers report more teens are coming out as transgender than ever before. Some say they are inspired by those now in the spotlight. From beauty pageant queens...
1: dollars you are
8: our new Jeopardy Champion. To the first trans woman winner on Jeopardy! To actresses like Laverne Cox of Orange is the New Black and Inventing Anna fame. And celebrities such as Caitlyn Jenner and Cher's son Chaz Bono.
1: We see evolving sort of identities uh, people who are non binary, people who are gender fluid, people who are, you know, all these different sort of labels that are starting to emerge to describe diverse experiences.
8: Dr. Jason Rafferty is a pediatrician and child psychologist at both Bradley Hospital and Hasbro's Gender and Sexuality Clinic. He says the societal shift to be more inclusive also has staunch critics. At least 20 states have introduced anti-transgender legislation aimed at everything from bathrooms to sports.
1: And now we're even seeing bills coming out that are banning gender-affirmative care. Uh, which is really the, the cornerstone being able to provide supportive mental health, being able to provide you know, physical and medical interventions when that's necessary. And that's really alarming. And, uh, I think we've seen this before, whether it's you know, with issues of race or sexual orientation, that as we try to become a more accepting culture, there's always some resistance.
8: Clinical right. social worker Andy Taubman from the nonprofit group Youth Pride R.I. says Welcome the Ocean State time. has been fairly open-minded.
3: We're pretty progressive. We have, like, laws in place that are, like, on the side of transgender youth. For example, in the schools, like, the school policies in Rhode Island are much like um, we don't not only that you don't discriminate, but that, like,
8: you have to make reasonable accommodation.
5: Um, welcome to Gender Spectrum. We'll be here for about an hour, talk about whatever we want to do with...
8: Um... She says the goal of services at Youth Pride is to transform gender dysphoria into euphoria by offering affirming care. These Gender Spectrum sessions are an example.
3: Those kind of things are very validating and affirming for them, and when they can have a stronger sense of self, and it does that resilience-building piece, right? And then. Becomes a little bit easier to deal with some of the stuff that they may be encountering
8: in the world. The drop in center has provided a safe space for young people like this teenager. Oh, tell me about this picture here. Oh,
7: this is a picture of um, when we went to Comic Con with uh, me and my friend Lewis.
8: The 18 year old who recently graduated from Ponagansett High School is a fan of Star Wars and playing video games. Typical kid. Yeah, typical kid. But growing up, not so typical at 14 there was an inkling of identifying as female
7: i brought a girl out on a date in freshman year i found her very pretty i wish i was her i couldn't get myself to realize that thought and i wouldn't believe it until much much more later on
8: so you didn't know you were transgender
7: discovering it was very rocky it was very very rocky So for me, I tried to do the most masculine thing, which was the United States Marine Corps in the hopes that that would get rid of my gender dysphoria. However, it did not work because no matter how hard you try, it's not going to go away. If it wasn't for me going to the Marine Corps and having all the way down to the bare bones standards of them shaving your head and then separating you from the boys and the girls uh, and the different ways of how you are perceived within the military, it really hit me of how I'm really inside the wrong space. I've pushed this back my entire life and it repeatedly shows up. It's a feeling that repeatedly shows up. I feel that I should be a girl. Um, I feel that I should be looked at as one because I am one.
8: Now, a life-altering decision. Going by the name Katie, she is getting counseling and just started HRT, hormone replacement therapy. She plans one day to have gender reassignment surgery.
7: It's still really a concept that people are trying to understand better, but we really don't know how to approach it. Uh, And the only people who know how to approach it are the people who are dealing
6: with it. I had top surgery, which is a double mastectomy, And um, my father actually took some time off for that.
8: Cole has found support from his parents and also from his wife. He and Thay, who was born and identifies as a woman, have been married three years. So tell me about how you met.
6: So we met at a friend's Halloween party in Minnesota. I just introduced myself as Cole. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't, like, branch off into... I didn't um, disclose that my trans status until, like, a couple of dates in.
8: How did you broach that subject?
6: It was kind of like oh, hey, I'm a trans, by the way. And it was just like, oh, okay. Were you nervous? A little bit, but it was more so like, I got to get this over with if I want to continue on with going down that path of, of courtship and dating. Do you look forward to maybe having a family one day? It is doable, and we plan on uh, doing either IVF or doing foster care and then adoption.
8: For right now, Cole is content just being comfortable in his own skin. Are you a happy man?
6: Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm living my best life. Yeah. I do mourn for who I was, but I'm happy I'm alive now.
8: Cole and his wife, Faye, welcomed a new addition to their family last week, a one-year-old Husky Pomeranian mix that they named Yoshimi. Meantime, Katie has been on hormone replacement therapy for nearly five months and says she is beginning to see significant physical changes. However, she is still facing challenges, including harassment when out in public.
1: Our final story deals with social media and addiction. While this addiction cannot be readily seen, its impact is alarming as it works its way deep into the recesses of the brain. Those most affected are teenagers, more specifically, teenage girls. The dopamine hits that keep users coming back for more have been linked to anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, increased eating disorders, bullying, and even suicide. As contributing producer Abby Oldham first reported last March, addictive algorithms created by big technology are hurting millions of impressionable minds.
3: Tonight, an Enfield mother is suing two popular social media sites after her 11-year-old daughter died by suicide.
8: Facebook's Instagram app
2: is harmful to a number of teenagers, and Facebook knows it. We're seeing increased anxiety and depression in teens who are um, really relying on social media because things like getting likes or approval in social media is a really important thing to teens.
9: On average, American children ages 8 to 12 spend 4 to 6 hours a day watching or using screens. And for teens, it's up to 9 hours a day.
4: So 45% of teens say that they use the Internet on
3: a near constant basis. I usually check it like right when I wake up and then also throughout the day, like in class if I'm bored or if I need a homework break, usually.
10: I have my screen time on my home screen, so I know how much time I'm using, but yeah, the hours definitely rack
2: up pretty quickly. You post something and somebody likes it, or those likes are coming in, right? It kind of activates this part of our brain and creates dopamine. So the pleasure part of our brain is activated and we kind of get a little payoff from that. So for teens, what that does is their brain is still developing. Um, It makes it really hard for them to kind of disconnect from that, because that's a good feeling in your brain when you get those likes. So you kind of want to go back for more and more and more of it. And that's when we see things like sleep disturbance and this anxiety level of, oh, I'm in math class, I wonder what's going on with my phone, or I'm at the dinner table with my family, but all I want to do is check my phone.
3: When it comes to social media, seemingly
10: real people are influencing young people from their self-esteem to what they buy. It's almost like corporations and celebrities are working together to deceive the public, and the people, the only people who are really benefiting are those big corporations and are those celebrities, so they can like glue people to their phones and paint an ideal life and almost manipulate children and think that they can have this ideal life if they buy those products.
8: More screen time seemed to spark more depression, particularly in girls. Researchers link that to the use of Snapchat and Instagram for photos related to body image.
10: So in middle school, I started a lot with um, body dysmorphia and um, eating disorders, and I think that definitely stemmed from the fact that I saw on social media um, these idealized girls who were my age who seemed so much more attractive than me and more feminine, and I think that I wanted to um, attain that. And I think it's hard on social media, especially with younger girls, because As like humans, we're not designed to see everybody in the world, but social media allows us to do so. So it just creates this hyper competitiveness, not even among the people you know, but like among the entire world.
3: Facebook knows that its amplification algorithms, things like engagement based ranking on Instagram, can lead children from just something innocent like healthy recipes to anorexia promoting content over a very short period of time.
9: An increasing body of evidence shows that, for many teenagers, greater use of
1: social media means a far greater sense of isolation.
3: And I think this was definitely seen during COVID, when people were kind of only interacting socially on social media because there was no in-person school or activities or anything. And I think that during a time when everyone's lives were already kind of um, falling apart in some cases. Social media, just like seeing other people and how they were kind of doing better than you, I guess, could definitely like make a mental health problem worse.
2: You really want to look out for if there's been any major changes in behavior. So changes in their maybe interest to be involved with their friends, school activities, are their grades slipping? Are you noticing things like sleep disturbance or changes in their appetite or eating? If they're just not themselves and that's kind of going on and interfering in their daily life, that's usually a a sign that um, reaching out to a professional could help.
8: And our thanks to Abby Oldham. In order to keep young children safe and healthy, Sarah Kelly Palmer has a suggestion for parents. Put off introducing your child to social media as long as possible because it's easier to give more freedom down the road than take it away. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts.
1: And I'm David Wright. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Thanks and good night.